Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm your host, Aaron Lowe. And if this is your first episode and you're wondering what this whole thing is all about, well, I'll tell you. Every week, I find my head surgically attached to the body of a different friend and cinephile. Together, we are given a note containing a theme, sometimes specific and sometimes vague. Our job is then to pick a pair of movies that fit that theme and then watch and discuss. This is The Incredible Two-Headed Podcast. Hey gang, welcome back to the show. Welcome back to the Incredible Two-Headed Podcast and the beginning, the finally the beginning of Summer in the Shadows, our summer-long maxi-series uh, devoted to film noir. And joining me today, a return guest and somebody who's probably going to be back once or twice or three or four times, we'll see how it goes over the summer, uh, is our old pal Rick Todd Johnson of the Cinema 4 Cell Block. Hey everybody, how you doing? Well, I'll answer for the audience. I'm doing okay. I am sweltering in this room because I've had to close the door so I don't get the benefit of the air conditioning in the rest of the apartment. And I'm against the window, so there's some some heat bleed through. It is, it is very warm now that summer is finally here. It is, yeah, it is stifling sometimes. I think it's a little hotter where I am. Yeah, probably, probably. Although it does get really warm here in the in the valley as well. I I'm biking to work now. And I'm leaving at about 4.30 every morning. And that bike ride is fantastic. It's about half an hour to 45 minutes, depending on how fast I'm going. And it, the temperature is perfect. <laughs> there's right. No, there's no traffic. It's quiet. It, it is such a relaxing start to my day. And I'm coming home at 2 in the afternoon, which is the hottest part of the day. And we've been, <laughs> up, we've been up in the mid-90s for the past... Uh, a couple of weeks and I get home. Actually, I'm like this when I get to work, but I, I have to take two shirts with me because when I show up at work, it's completely drenched, like disgustingly so. And then when right. I get home and whatever I'm wearing, I just, I have to jump into a cool shower immediately. Yeah. Luckily I am at the moment, at, at a mo uh, moment of time where I don't leave the house for hardly anything. So <laughs> it's been that way for a year and I'm still happy with it because I don't have to go out in the sun that much. So I am not a California person. Me either. Like, I mean, don't don't tell don't tell Amber this, but yeah, I and don't I, tell my I, wife that either. So. I have found myself watching movies that are set somewhere else, like where the Midwest, the, the North, or just somewhere where you can see like trees in the background and it's kind of gray skies. And I, I'll watch movies, and I won't even watch the characters anymore. I'll just watch that parking lot that looks like it's been freshly rained on, and be like, oh. I miss that. Yeah, I, I'm the same way with snow scenes in movies. I just go, yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. I know, I know. I, I mean, it's nice to be where it's warm sometimes, but really, like winter is pretty much the only time I really like it down here. And that that winter is not even really cold. It's just like, oh, this is comfortable. <laughs> it's not really winter here. No, and it's going to be less like it in the future. It's like, just, well, so we don't. Yeah, we don't need to get into too much of a bummer here to begin with. Well, nah. the movies do that. Uh, so we've both been back to work. How how things been going? How's the new schedule working for you? No, oh, it's uh, my own schedule. So pretty much I just work when 
they ask me to do something and I just do it whenever I want to do it. So yeah, it's been, it's my hours of my own hours. So I'm enjoying work so far. So I just, you know, I can get up at three and work on something or I can do it at four in the afternoon. And sometimes I got to be in a meeting with somebody, but generally it's just, I just work whenever I feel like working. So it's been great. So I'm feeling better than the last time we recorded a couple of weeks ago. The, the episode, the discussion that we had, listeners will have just heard it last week, but we recorded a couple of weeks ago when I had literally just started the job. And now I've been on it a couple of weeks. Getting used to being back out and having a schedule, I have not been able to like find the time to watch the movies I want to watch. I, I, I've been watching some stuff with, with, uh, with my daughter and, you know, movies for the podcast, but I, um, I'm still waiting to find that balance between what I want to do and what I have to do, but I'm mentally feeling much better about it. And, and part of it's that bike ride. I am getting in shape. I am, I am noticing a difference in just how I feel. Um, I'm not quite as sore as I, as I was, although my knees are still like getting tired and achy understandable but we got a couple of movies today i think this time both kind of suggested by you though i was uh enthusiastic in accepting the suggestions i like both of these movies i think i'd only seen each movie once before but i remember really liking them so i was really excited we're going to be talking today uh well about noir films but our theme this week is guns 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 so we got a couple of movies Uh, If you're ready, I guess we'll just take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk about the first one, This Gun for Hire. So you're a copper's girl. Who told you that? He was here looking for you, and he'd better stay away from me. Veronica Lake, who burst on the screen like a blonde bombshell. Alan Ladd, who's dynamite with a gun or a girl. Together, they blast all screen traditions in This Gun for Hire, drama-packed story of Philip Raven, whose search for vengeance on the man who betrayed him puts a hundred policemen on his trail and forces him to hide behind a girl. Watch it, cover. It's Raven. Do what he says. You stay where you are. There's a dragnet out for you, Raven. It won't do any good to hurt her, so use your head. You better stay put. Who trusts anybody? You couldn't very well complain to the police, could you? I'm my own police. What could you do? First, I'd find out who you're stooging for. And I'd give him what I gave Baker. Don't I? I can't stand violence. Then I'd whittle off a little of that blubber. You still want that stuff in Gates? Of course I do. Help me out of here and I'll get it for you. What was that hot air last night? That flight waiter. Hey, I'll shoot it out with him, and I hope your copper gets the first slug. This Gun for Hire is a 1942 film noir directed by Frank Tuttle and based on a novel by Graham Greene. The film follows Raven, a hitman played by Alan Ladd, in a star-making performance as he hunts down the crooked industrialists who have double-crossed him. Veronica Lake stars as Ellen Graham, a nightclub singer who is hired by one of those crooked industrialists and whose boyfriend, played by Robert Preston, is the cop hot on Raven's heels. Now, this is a movie I'd seen a few years ago. I might have actually seen this during, for the first time during TCM's Summer in Darkness, the thing that, that kind of inspired all of this. And I liked it a lot. I liked Alan Ladd in it. I, I was left a little bit 
like wanting a little bit more and I'm not sure why, but it, it, I remember liking it, but it didn't kind of like leave a humongous impression on me. And then watching it this time, uh, and I watched it twice, like really in quick succession. I actually just finished it for the second time and then started again for a, a third time before we started recording, just having in the background while I was finishing up notes. I found everything about it to be really, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, I, I was really impressed by it, by the narrative turns it's taking and how much plot there is in a movie so short. Right. Yeah, it's crammed to the gills. Yeah, and Alan Ladd's performance in this, and we'll get to that in a minute, but I, I, I think he does, like, some really interesting things with a pretty stock character type. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute, but you, what's your history with, with this film? I'm, I'm sure you, uh, you saw this my, a year ago. Yeah, I saw this, uh, I saw this in my early 20s for the first time uh, when I was uh, working for the, the bookstore chain that I worked for through, you know, a good chunk of my life and was ordering videos for the, for, you know, as the video buyer for them. Uh, so we sold, we sold VHS in the store and um, I, we had a selection of noir type films and, and things like Maltese Falcon, things like that. And, uh, and one of the ones that we regularly stocked was this gun for hire. And I had never really heard of the film before, but you know, I was, a, I was a film fan, but of course, you know, growing up, you did, you, it was kind of hit or miss with regular TV channels. So you only saw some stuff. I had never heard of this movie. The cover looked intriguing and Veronica Lake was on the cover and that's really all I needed to watch the <laughs> film. So, and I didn't know who she was. I hadn't seen Sullivan's travels yet. I, you know, I just, who's this girl, you know, with the blonde hair and stuff. I bought one of the copies, you know, from our store. And uh, I, that became a regular rotation film for me for many, many, many years. And so I've seen it quite a lot in the you know through the 80s and into the early 90s and then i kind of let it go for about 20 years you know uh, until recently and then I, I was just like man i i i, I need to i think i got it on dvd like a couple years ago or on, not on dvd on blu-ray a couple years ago and it, it was just like oh my gosh i remember how much i love this movie and a lot of it was alan ladd and how cool he was in it you know and, and then the biggest factor of course was veronica lake i just fell immediately in love with her well, let's talk about Alan Ladd then, because you, you mentioned how cool he is in this movie. And I will agree with you to a point, but I think one of the things I find most interesting about his performance is how uncool he makes him. Yes. There's there's something a little bit lost about him. And it took me a while to figure out. Very lost about him. He's a very damaged person. Raven, very damaged. Yeah, it took me a, like till my my second of the most recent viewings to put my finger on the word to describe him because I, I, I kind of wanted to say like, he's kind of innocent or he's guileless or he, he's, he kind of doesn't understand a lot. But then I was like, that, that's not quite right because he's not innocent. He knows he's, he knows what he's doing. He's not incredibly guileless because he, he puts together a lot of things and he's really good at, at maneuvering all of the complications of this plot. But he seems lost like he doesn't he, he seems almost like he's kind of like he's good at maneuvering but he, he doesn't understand it like he doesn't get a lot of things um even now i'm still having trouble describing it but it, it i'm talking about he has, he has like that monologue later on where he talks about his dreams this dream he has <laughs> and, and he talks about how his parents died and he lived with an abusive aunt who 
uh, like broke his wrist because he, he snuck a candy bar off the counter or something like that. And, um, and he ends up murdering her and that's what sends him to uh, reform school. Yeah. Reform school and puts him on the path where he is now. He's a hired gun. He goes and like, he, we're introduced to him going off to kill a couple of people. Even before that, like you, you get that there's something not quite right in, in, in him. And you're right. Damage. Damage is a good word as well. Uh, but he's he it all like really well. He, he doesn't connect. He doesn't connect to adults. He only connects to small children and cats. And the commentary on the on the Blu-ray is interesting because the one of the one of the the writers for it he nails it. He says he's a bit of a stray cat himself. He's a lost animal. He's a you know literally a, like like a lost animal. You know he's he has he's craving. There's things he he doesn't he he needs attention he needs love but he doesn't know that's what he needs and he briefly finds it in this film you know in a certain measure or at least he thinks he does you know when you see him at the beginning of the film I mean apart from his love for the the kitten and and the small girl that he runs into he's wild you know he's dangerous he's he he's cool as hell I mean you see him he's just like but he's absolutely just a, a manic, you know, animal is what he is. Yeah. He's visibly like in his visible physical for, he's agitated the way he smacks the maid around, you know, <laughs> rips her dress. Yeah. You know. Well, I, I'm going to say like in his physical performance, he's fairly unflappable. Like uh, well, where I'm jumping over the scene you just mentioned, but when he gets to the point where he is supposed to kill the guy, the blackmailer, Right. He's going to kill the guy and there's the woman there and he doesn't react at all. He's very, well, he, he starts to smile just before he shoots the guy. Like the barest glimmer of a smile. Yeah. Like he's going to enjoy this, you know. Yeah. The woman comes out when she hears the gunshot and he says, I was told he'd be alone, kind of like an apology before he then kills her. And he's in a way unflappable, but you get through his performance that, yeah, he is very, uh, agitated is, is i think the word you used is really good yeah um, feral feral is the word yeah like he's always looking for the way out and yeah. he's always on edge uh it's really good and i said this was a star make, making performance in a just world he would have been top built top built because he's he's clearly the lead of this movie i mean veronica yeah. lake and him are maybe equal but alan ladd is the focal point of this movie and he was paid less than robert preston in this movie and that's crazy in, like two thousand dollars less which i think he, i think he was paid like forty seven hundred dollars for this movie or something like that in the end credits he's fourth build but in the opening credits he gets in and introducing credit but right. he, he'd been in hollywood for 10 years he was he's in he's in citizen kane like the year before yeah it, it just this was like his first like kind of like leading role i guess his first major role yeah and he it's clear like he's he's going to be a star. Like I said, like for such an early performance as a lead character, he puts a lot into it. That's not necessarily there on the page or he is reading out of the page. A lot of things. I think a lot of actors wouldn't have quite thought to put into it. Yeah. I kind of jumped over. We were talking about the, um, we were talking about the maid. <laughs> he rips her dress and he smacks her. And the reason he does that it's is because He's got a kitten that he keeps in his room and the maid comes in and starts smacking it with a rolled up magazine. Yeah. Um, 
and he comes up behind her and like pulls her back and like rips her dress when doing it and then smacks her <laughs> and like it's a really odd save the cat moment to introduce our character with because he saves the cat so he's a good person but then he rips the dress and beating a woman yeah strikes the maid which marks him as a bad man so like who who had to save who wrote the save the cat book who was that oh i don't even know i don't know save the cat i don't uh blake snyder save the, the cat the last book on screenwriting you'll ever need oh, i've never read it your hero has to have a save the cat moment where they do something they do something good small and heroic to get the audience on their side which is it's one of those BS screenwriting rules that. Well, I wonder if he. I wonder if he got that from this movie. Oh, maybe, but it, it's it's such a cliche now that it, it was kind I of. Funny that, never heard of it, so. Oh, I'm I'm surprised. I, I don't pay attention to a lot of like screenwriting books, so. Oh, I've never read it, but I just know about it from other like reading and hearing from other writers that Save the Cat is kind of one of those cliche books that that real screenwriters are like, oh, I hate, you kind of hate it because it's it's saying there are rules to things that there aren't really rules to. Maybe that's why I avoided it. <laughs> so. yeah, maybe. But yeah, it was it was a very uh, conflicted introduction to this character. Like kind of keeps us on our toes with, with regards to how we're supposed to feel about him. And then that scene is mirrored later when he accidentally kills the kitten when he's hiding out with Veronica Lake. And it's, it's meowing and kind of drawing some, att some attention. Um, so he accidentally kills the kitten, kind of like the kid in the final episode of MASH. Oh, and that's the line where he says, he kind of like, Veronica Lake asks him like, or says to him like, oh, you like cats, huh? And he, he has that line like, yeah, they're alone or they're on their own. And really drawing the parallel between him and, and a, a feral animal. Right. And then his ultimate fate is pretty much the kitten being killed too. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this movie is under an hour and a half. It's with credits like an hour and 18 minutes, I think. Uh, I think it's uh, hour 21. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It throws so much stuff in there. There are, are so many connections, so many crazy coincidences, so many uh, hidden intentions, like secret motivations between all the characters and secret relationships between all of the characters that I think I was still finding stuff out or still realizing stuff about this the plot on my last viewing, which would have been my right. first. Like I, I was still like, oh, okay, that's how, or that explains how they got the marked bills <laughs> because they had, they had engineered the payroll heist and gotten the cops right. involved. So when they gave him the money, it would be marked. And yep. Uh, what was the other one that I, I just realized? It's really simple, but I kind of like, I, I kind of was like, uh, oh, I was kind of wondering like what, on one of my viewings, I was wondering why, what's his name? Oh gosh, the uh, the nightclub owner. Um, Gates. Yeah, I was wondering why Gates, how Gates explained recognizing Raven on the train to the police and then realized like, oh, okay, they've already pinned it on him now. There's that scene earlier where they um, they realize that it's this guy with the uh, the broken wrist, and I just hadn't realized that. He's just wrapped up, yeah. Yeah, there's there's so much. Like it's not overly complicated. You get you get the idea of it, even if you're not following all of the details. But it it, it amazed me on like 
second and third viewings that yeah this everything here is connected and you kind of have to buy that some of these crazy coincidences would happen but if you do that then everything makes perfect sense like it is a connected line or maybe a twisted line but a connected line between everything that happens in this film yeah well i mean there's there's well, because it starts out with this simple blackmail you know this this hitman kind of movie with a with a you know with a blackmailer and all this and then all of a sudden it turns into this this espionage film and this rah-rah flag waving film and <laughs> We had evil industrialists and you know it just it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger you know and it's ultimately ultimately it's still just a hitman movie but there's a ton of stuff in the middle of it yeah of um, course there's a relationship between lake and lad also yeah because you you get that scene with the the blackmailer instead of paying he gets what the i am back and he kills him the blackmailer and the woman with him right he shoots her through the door yeah yeah that's right and then he kind of has to shove the door open because her body's falling against it and then he takes that to gates who's just constantly eating sweets in this movie uh he's right. eating a sunday when we're introduced to him and he gives him the chemical compound we'll find we don't know what it is until much later we find out it's it's like a, a new poison gas that they're going right. to sell to the japanese and this is during world war ii so it, it yeah that's at the start of world war ii so yeah so america has just actually when they were filming this america wasn't quite in the war but uh, they were by the time it was released. So they had to, you know, they had to kind of jury rig it. So it was more patriotic. Yeah. Okay. I didn't realize that. Yeah. And then, and then we follow Gates and Gates is having the discussion with the cops about like, what are you doing about this payroll uh, theft? And like, then he goes to visit the, uh, uh, the old guy, the guy in charge of the, uh, his boss. He goes to visit his boss, who's this old man in a wheelchair. He's pretending to be this kindly old man who cares about Mr. his employees. Sure. Yeah. He can't he can't speak over a little bit of a whisper. And then once all the employees leave, he's kind of yelling and he's like, Oh, yeah, he's a big time villain. He's like, he's full on, you know, fooling everybody. Yeah, but that that's the thing is that every time we're introduced to somebody, there's something more. Yeah. There's a, there's a little bit of a reversal that's going to be coming up later on. That might even play an erotic late, because when she comes out. When you first when you first meet her, she's uh, auditioning at at Gates's nightclub, and she comes out and she's a singer, but she's also a magician and she's pulling all these little, little sleight of hand tricks yeah. in the middle of the act. And she does a couple different songs in the movie. She's not actually singing, but she does a couple songs in the movie. And uh, and each time she has different like magic tricks that she's doing. And so that's in a in a way that's kind of the way everybody in this film is is that there's how you initially see them presented. And then there's like a little bit of sleight of hand with their character. I don't know if they intended that, but that's the way I'm reading it is that everybody's a little bit of a magician in this film. You know? Yeah. That that's such a clear metaphor. They, somebody had to think about that. It, it maybe it's, is it, I have not read the Graham green novel, but he seems a writer that would intentionally leave that kind of stuff in there. I don't, I've not read this Grand Green novel. I've read several other Grand Green novels, but I mean, he's always got interesting things going on. But yeah, I've not read this Gun for Hire. So the book is a, a Gun for Sale is the name of the book. But in America, it had this Gun for Hire as the title. Yeah. And Graham Greene, of course, who wrote The Third Man, The Quiet yeah. American, um, Odd Man Out, right? He wrote Odd Man Out yeah. Yeah. and Our Man in Havana. Is that the one? I believe that's one of his too. Yeah. That's 
that movie is a lot of fun. I I wish that had a, a decent release. The only one that I can think of, it had a DVD release. It was like movies and martinis. It, like, I don't know. It was like one of those things where they, they put kind of a, a silly graphic design on the cover to kind of make it part of a, a series of unrelated films, just marketing gimmick. The, the Veronica Lake scene, when she's introduced, I, I can't say I had the, quite the same reaction as you to Veronica Lake in movies, because, but, but I mean, I, I understand her appeal. This Veronica Lake audition scene, I did not buy. <laughs> she, is really? Not really, she is not really selling that she is singing or, or performing. I mean, she's doing the motions of the tricks, but a lot of it is also camera trickery. And a little bit of it is, but she was taught how to do, how to manipulate, yeah. them, you know. Um, but yes, yeah, so there is a little bit of camera trickery. Um, but yet, it's with any musical number. You, I, I always buy into musical numbers. I, I, I'm mainly because I like musicals and stuff. I'm willing that anything can happen in a musical number, even if it's just on a nightclub floor. Okay. I'm always I'm always willing to buy stuff that happens, even if like so. I'm willing to buy that Esther Williams can do a big swim production number on a stage in front of an audience, you know, even though it's like really physically impossible for that to happen unless you have people, you know, seated in a, you know, amphitheater setting above the swimming pool and stuff. But oh, yeah. I'm always anytime anything. So Busby Berkeley musicals, the stage opens up and it's huge and there's like thousands of dancers and stuff. And you just go, okay. I, I'm, you know, even in the small nightclub audition scene, I'm just willing to go, you know, I'm willing to buy it. It's, it, it's the same way that I'm willing to buy all the special effects in Thief of Baghdad in 1940 or Ray Harryhausen dinosaur. It's just like, I'm willing to buy into that, that dinosaur is real because it's selling me the story, you know, so. I get that. I get that. I just think that, yeah. like, she is, <laughs> like, her, her facial movements and the way she's, like, just lip syncing to this, it's not... She's not lip syncing it with much emotion. I've seen far, well, she's supposed to be a very cool character on, on, on stage. So okay. she's being cool, you know? Yeah, all right. So, all right. And that's kind of the style. I mean, if you ever, I, they're, they're like, uh, trying to think of her name. Uh, I'm trying to think of, the, uh, was it Virginia Davis? Who just has that kind of monotone singing style where she just, she's doing really crazy things, but she keeps her face completely like just, you know her voice very monotone and it was just kind of a thing in the 40s so I, i'm willing to buy that she's not you know putting a lot of emotion into this song which is just a kind of a sappy stupid song about love you know but uh it's not really meant to be sung with a lot of emotion either so uh no i i i get that i get that so so plot wise we've got raven and veronica lake get hooked up because well, I kind of have to rewind on that to talk about how Veronica Lake gets involved because she's auditioning for a nightclub that is owned by Gates, who uh, right. was the um, the guy who paid off Raven and had arranged for Raven to be arrested. She's auditioning for a nightclub, but it turns out she's not just auditioning randomly. She is auditioning at the behest of Senator Burnett, and she's not even aware right. that Senator Burnett is the person who's hired her yet. And Senator Burnett has gotten is aware that gates is involved with kind of anti-american agents and wants to get proof but they haven't been able to yet so he gets her to to go undercover for him like i said everybody in this has has like dual motives um, right and the guy i wrote this down and apparently my notes 
the, oh, there we go. So the connection between Veronica Lake and Senator Burnett is Blair Fletcher, who's played by Olin Howland. Yes. It it took me a minute. Like I was like, he is so familiar. The Why blob. I know him. And I I looked him up. Yeah, the blob. He is in so many movies, of course. Like he just like all character actors of the time. Uh, like Satan Metal Lady, the second version of the Maltese Falcon he's in. Uh, he's in them. And yeah, he's the hobo, the first victim of the blob. Yeah. With the I, stick. Yeah, with the stick. Uh, it's great. He's he's good in this. He's he's really funny. Um, he's so dismissive and just like eh, of everything. Like I I dig up my wife's mother for ten percent and <laughs> and when Veronica Lake's like I do have a boyfriend and he just goes and she don't mean me goodbye <laughs> and closes the car door. He's he's really fun in this. Like just for the the one scene basically that he's in. Yeah. Okay, so I, I'm talking about how she, Veronica Lake, gets involved. So she's on the train to Los Angeles to go to Gates' nightclub. Gates is also in the train, although he's got a sleeping car. And uh, Raven gets on that train as well and ends up sitting next to Veronica Lake. Completely by chance. Completely by chance. Uh, steals $10 from her because all of his money is marked and he can't use it. And uh, But she's on to him. She's on to him. They have a discussion. They kind of They, they kind of have a connection. Um, she is very compassionate towards Raven from the very beginning. Uh, yeah. Does not, does not really, it calls him out for stealing the money, but does not like tell anybody. She's just like, hey, just give it back. <laughs> or are you that hard up? Do you need that money that bad? Gates comes through and sees them sitting together and thinks that they're in league. So he starts to be distrustful of Veronica Lake. And of course, Veronica Lake's boyfriend, fiance, is a cop that is chasing down this payroll. Uh, thief who is Raven and now he's chasing this hitman the, for for how many characters this movie has it, it's very tightly interwoven like how they're <laughs> all connected yeah it's a little too tight it it is it is but I, I there is something about that that if not realistic is still narratively satisfying like I kind of like like how much of this you know the work's gonna get done you know it's like... yeah I I do like how much of a closed loop this movie is that yeah. there's no real loose ends. Everybody is connected. Everything is is uh, accounted for. We get like we get a resolution to everything that is going on in this movie. So this was directed by Frank Tuttle, and I, I don't know if I've seen no, I, I I've seen at least one movie because this year, like an odd little thing, uh, Alan Ladd also starred in The Glass Key, which is a remake of a film originally directed by Tuttle. And right. I've seen the original. I have not seen the remake. But otherwise, I don't know if I've seen too much of his work. The remake is much better than the original. So. Oh, really? Well, the, the the remake has Lad and Lake in it. Yeah. And it's a much better, much more fun version. It has Brian Dunleavy, too. Uh, it's I actually watched it after I watched rewatched uh, This Gun for Hire. I was like, well, I got to watch a couple other other movies. But they did Lake and Lad did four movies together. I watched three of them for this for you know preparing for this um, because I have them. You know, so the Glass Key is a lot of fun. It's in its way, it's kind of more of a buddy comedy. <laughs> you know, it's it's still a it's still kind of hard boiled and stuff. But it's you know it, Lake and Dunleavy are like are like pretty good buddies and and uh, um, and they're they're involved with shenanigans. But it, it, it's a, it's a lot more fun. The first one with George Raft is not as much fun. It, it's yeah. a little it's a little stale it's a little static and yeah i much prefer the the later one all right well i will 
add that to my ever-growing list. Yeah, you, you can't you can't go wrong with any Dashiell Hammett anyway. So you know, yeah, in any version. Well, I don't know. One, uh, I'm not too fond of that. Uh, when I say you can't go wrong, I mean you're going to get an interesting watch, not necessarily a good film. Okay, I was going to say I'm not a big fan of that. The first version of Maltese Falcon with it's Ricardo still Cortez. But, but yeah. yeah, I like Ricardo Cortez in it though. So. You do? I I just thought he was so unlikable. <laughs> I like him. In, I like him in several films. Yeah, he's such an asshole in that movie. Like not not yes. even like, not even like a a a fun enjoyable asshole for me. I was just like, man, I don't like this guy. <laughs> it's a different take. You know, yeah. But okay. It's still interesting. So that's that was my point. Is that? Yeah, that's true. So I don't know if you've seen it yet because it's it it just came out on HBO Max. But have you have you watched? Um, no sudden move, the new Soderbergh film. Uh, we, I tried to talk the wife into watching it yesterday, but we decided to watch it in the Heights instead. Okay, well, which I is want... not a bad choice because in the Heights was terrific. But... Yeah, and that that's going to be leaving soon on HBO anyway. So I gotta, yeah. I gotta talk the family into watching that. Maybe we'll watch that tonight or tomorrow. I, we've got a long weekend. Um, no, no sudden move. I, I won't really go too much into it, but ended up having a lot of parallels with this gun for hire. I, I like watching no sudden move and then i followed it right up with this gun for hire again i was like oh wow the buried motive or not the buried motive but the the kind of like final motive for everything the um the corporate not espionage but like the the macguffin of like some corporate secret it that is handled in kind of a similar way in no sudden move as the as the chemical formula yeah yeah i mean it it, it it's got a similar well, it's got a few more similarities I don't want to get into. I really enjoyed it. I liked it a lot. Good. I haven't been watching a bunch of Sonderberg for the last couple of years since he came back out of retirement. I, I didn't. I wasn't aware that he was basically now filming everything on an iPhone, like a modified iPhone. But that's what I heard. Yeah. It, it gives everything like kind of a weird fisheye, like especially when he is tracking, like the background kind of moves in a weird way. I kind of liked it, but I understand a lot of people don't, and I. I actually really want to watch No Sudden Move again. It was really a lot of fun. Cool. Well, we're 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 at the point now where they're in Los Angeles, Raven and Veronica Lake. And there's a scene where it looks like he's Raven is about to kill her. Like is that do you think he would have actually gone through with it if they hadn't been interrupted? Because he's it looks like he's pulling out a gun. He's telling her yeah. to stand over there. I, I think he actually he may have. And then they get interrupted and she runs and he jumps out a window. And then the next time they meet, he's saving her life. And from that point on, like, seems pretty attached to her. Like, and not even like in a romantic way, because he's not, he's, it doesn't seem like he wants anything from her. He, he kind of hopes she's happy with her fiance. He's like, is he the right one for you or something like that? It's interesting to think that he was like really just about to shoot her in the back. <laughs> yeah, but he was, he was about to shoot her in the back because that's, that's the way he is. I mean, that's, yeah. you know. She she would be a loose a, a loose thread, and so that yeah he was definitely going to shoot her. So then the final, well not not really the final that that that's like a little over midway through the movie I think we've got the yeah. it's where um where Gates is trying to figure out if they're really working together, and he's then convinced he is. So he and his his uh, valet are are he's going to have his valet basically dispose of her body. Uh, make it look like a suicide. Yeah, make it look like she killed herself. Yeah, and you know, uh, 
what is he? I, I mean, I don't want to go step by step in the plot, but we, we don't, don't need to. But I mean, we we've set it up, so I mean, it's all it's all going to lead to a big shootout and, and all sorts of stuff. So yeah. I I do like to get to the ending, and and I mean, spoilers if we we care about those. Um, I did like how he gets into the gas mask. Yeah, because they're they're running a drill, or they're they're As what the is it they were doing that they were they were making everybody wear gas masks because they were running a drill or were they actually having gas released? Because he's like, make sure everybody is safe. I don't want anybody to be hurt by this. Or were they just transporting something and they needed to No, make- they're doing a they're doing a drill. Yeah. Okay. It's just just a it's just a gas attack drill. But he wants all to wear wear masks. That's how Raven manages to sneak in. Yeah, because the valet uh, Gates's valet spots him and chases him down, but Raven basically knocks him out takes his outfit and gas mask and he's able to get in. I like how once he gets into the the boss's inner office, the doctor, the doctor who's been like pushing him around in his wheelchair and handling everything for him, basically like turns out to just be like to save the day. Like the the cops are about to break in and save the boss and the doctor like locks the door again. And he's like, no, you, you take care of him. You get him to write this. I've been watching him make all these deals with these foreign agents. Uh, all these years and I've been just sitting by and now we're going to catch him. We're going to stop him from hurting American soldiers, which I mean, yeah, more early world war two, rah, rah Americanism, but he, it, it is another character. Even these minor characters have hidden motivations. Yeah. Um, uh, something I wanted to point out is uh, there's the, there's the scene where, where, where Raven takes Lake at one point, he, he kidnaps her at one point and she's leaving a trail behind her of her cards. Mm-hmm. You know, and she's marking, she's using, and then she uses her uh, her little powder puff to mark yeah. the wall where they go up the wall and stuff. And it's just really cool how she leaves a trail of breadcrumbs behind her. And and they they know that she's, you know, she's a magician. So she's got these cards and stuff and that's how they follow her trail and stuff. And it's just very neat how she does it. Yeah, the, um, the shootout the next day, I really like, <laughs> I don't know. I was really impressed by Alan Ladd's physicality in escaping when, he he escaped. He jumps onto that train, and the, as the cops are closing him in on in on him from each side on the bridge, I thought it was really well shot. I thought it looked cool. He, he he cut a striking figure running like really at top speed across that little wooden bridge and jumped yeah. on the train. Uh, I don't know. There's a lot to this movie. Like I I it was I guess I I I don't know what I missed, but it, it, I guess it was easy for me to miss it in the first viewing. But there's like there's a lot in this movie that's just really fun and really well put together and well just lad is just so charismatic in the role i mean he's just absolutely every time he's on the screen you're just riveted by him and i mean it's it's and that's what i got when i first saw it i was just like well he's just an incredibly cool actor and at the at the time i was like big on bogart bogart was my guy and i was really i'd only seen a couple bogart films before my early 20s you know i i I, but i i think the first one i ever saw was african queen and stuff but i didn't see his 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 tough guy pictures until I was in my twenties. And so that's when I was really getting into him. And then I went and, you know, I was also into Cagney and stuff, but then I saw this movie and I was just like, well, okay, well, Alan Ladd is just all a whole different type of cool. You know, I had seen Shane, I had seen Shane as a kid. So I knew who Alan Ladd was, but I did not know Alan Ladd like this, you know, it was just like, he was a revelation to me. And then the double combo with him and Lake and just the fact that they have such great chemistry in the film. And that's the biggest part of the film is the fact that the two of them just work so well together, even though apparently she was just an incredible pain in the ass to work with. Like 
Lad, I guess, worked fine with her. He did four films with her and they were matched because she was so, she was like four foot 11. So, and he was only five, six, sometimes five, four, depending on where it's listed. So that's why she was matched with him is because she was much shorter than he was. So he could look taller, but, but uh, like uh, Joel McRae refused to work with her again after Sullivan's travels. Like mm. absolutely. And he was, he was supposed to be, uh, Joel McRae was supposed to be in I Married a Witch with her but he refused to work with her again. And that's when they brought in Frederick March and Frederick March absolutely hated her because she pulled pranks on him through the entire film. And she, he hated working with her. Uh, most, most of her male co-stars did not like her. Oh, wow. Not, she was not very well liked in, 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 uh, in Hollywood at all. And she was very much, uh, I know later in her career, she was very much an alcoholic and uh and and she was dead by i think she died at like 49 or something like that she you know she died in the early 70s and she was very young you know comparatively well yeah Alan Ladd died at 50 yeah he died yeah he, well you know, he's a good deal older than her in this movie too but uh yeah she was she was i want to say like 19 or 20 or something like in this film um she was yeah she was born in 22 so yeah she was 20 years old when she made this film uh, yeah, they have really great chemistry, though. You're right about that. And that's interesting. They got along. I was going to say... Well, I don't know. If, I actually don't know if they actually got along or not. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. She did not get along with most of her male co-stars. But they must have gotten along if they did four movies together. So, so they must have got along to some measure. Or Alan Ladd, after 10 years of struggling in these little bit parts, was finally like, no, okay, I'll, I'll put up with it. Yeah, you know, who knows? But I was going to say, poor Robert Preston has her love interest and like the second build lead in this movie it has no time no like no real impression they they just like it it is the most like baldly melodramatic just it's here because it needs to be here parts of the movie yeah and like even and every time he tries to like it, and i know it's kind of a cliche in films where the you know the two characters are supposed to be in love they're supposed to kiss and they get interrupted by something over and over again and that happens in this movie but it even happens up until the end of this movie he never <laughs> really gets to lock lips with her you know it's just like even though they're going to be together at the end of the movie like they're interrupted by a train or you know it's like <laughs> it's ridiculous you yeah. know and, and it's played for laughs. It's the, it's the comic relief moments in the movie, you know, but yeah, Robert Preston never, never really gets to, gets any headway with her. No. And he just doesn't, he also just doesn't quite make an impression with Alan Ladd there as well. In oh no, no. He's completely overridden by, by Ladd. I, I do want to mention Laird Kriegar because he's a, he was a, uh, who played Gates. Uh, he was a, just a really, really cool actor. Oh yeah. Got, okay. He, he died at the age of 31. Uh, he died in 1944. Oh, wow. He was told that he had to lose weight. He started working for Fox, and uh, he was supposed to lo lose weight for his lead roles in The Lodger and Hangover Square, which he did for Fox. At, and um, he was on a crash diet, and he ended up getting abdominal problems, and then he ended up, uh, he ended up dying very, very young. Yeah, he's only like 29 in this movie. Man, you know, he's a bigger guy, but he was trying to lose weight and it just led to just enormous physical difficulty for him doing that. And uh, it made him absolutely sick and he died. And uh, he was going to be a big star. He was supposed to be in, uh, he's supposed to, I think he's supposed to be in a version of Hamlet and all sorts of stuff that was planned for him. And Hangover Square came out after he died. So it was a big hit, but he was, you know, 
Well, and then he was he was the Jack the Ripper character in the in the 40, 1944 version of the Lodger, which is I think the same director as uh, Hangover Square. John, I think John Brom. But, I, haven't, uh, I haven't seen that. Yeah, they're both very good films. I I thought for sure I had seen something with him. Oh, Heaven Can Wait! I think I've seen because he he looked very familiar in this movie, and I I was wondering what it must have been that I saw him in. Now, I thought I saw Wake Up, I Wake Up Screaming, but maybe not. Oh, yeah, I've seen most of these movies, but yeah, but, most of his movies on his, on his, on his, yeah, I've seen all, like almost all of these except for Granny, Get Your Gun. But yeah, he only did like about 13 or 14 films. And, uh, um, but he was going to be a huge, huge star, no pun intended. So, no, I uh, have seen I Wake Up Screaming. Okay. Uh, so I've seen a couple of things. Um, I just thought he must have had more more roles because of how familiar he looked and he, he is um i mean he is really good in this movie i i think he's, he's got good a, yeah he's he was an excellent actor i can't believe like lose weight because i don't know maybe maybe it's just the roles they wanted him to play but he seemed like he had like like a really good presence and physical build for this type of role that he could yeah but, be playing yeah but not the roles that they wanted him in, in like romantic leads and things like that so yeah oh, that's too bad I mean, not to end, end this thing on a on a downer, but I mean, it is it is film noir, I guess. Yep. But anyway, yeah, that's uh, that's this gun for hire. <laughs> so. Really good. I um I have a couple more days on the rental. I got about half an hour into it again while I was writing my notes. I might go and finish that again before the rental. That's is over. that's funny because I did the same thing here. So I I was actually like half. I was actually like twenty eight minutes into it when you when you said time to record. So. <laughs> So I might I might go finish it because yeah it's 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 really good and the the two leads are really uh, are really um, compelling enjoyable uh, film. All right, and that'll be it, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're going to be talking about Gun Crazy from 1950. This obsession he seems to have for guns. Maybe a boy likes to feel he's best at something so i saved up and one christmas i got him a brand new bb gun it's something else about guns that gets him do i hear a challenge very interesting indeed star is always delighted to accept these small donations you don't own me, Packy. I saw the two of you. The way you're looking at each other tonight. Like a couple of wild animals. Almost scared me. It should. Somebody might get hurt. How can anybody get hurt if we don't hurt them? I want to do a little living. What's your idea of living? It's not 40 bucks a week. Tell me, when did you get this idea? Oh, I've always had it. Ever since I can remember. If I don't get it one way, I'll get it the other. I told you I was no good. I didn't kid you, did I? Well, now you know. Shoot! Gun Crazy from 1950 is perhaps one of the most nakedly Freudian of film noirs. 
The film follows Bart Tare, a man pathologically obsessed with guns and his volatile romance with carnival sharpshooter Annie Laurie Starr as they embark on a life as notorious criminals holding up gas stations and stores across the country. This is another one I'd seen, I think I'd seen this a couple of times before. This Gun for Hire, it took a second viewing for it to really grow on me. This is one that I kind of realized right away, like it's, I don't want to be pretentious here, but it's power. Um, I, I thought it was just remarkably cool, even though I think as in our texts back and forth about this, we're both kind of like not pro-gun. We're not really big gun fans, but this movie is... I'm not at all, so... Yeah. <laughs> well, I have I have, I have, have owned guns in the past. Yes. Um, I, I have enjoyed the act of going out and shooting, <laughs> but... Um, I mean, maybe we can have that conversation later, but I'm not, I, I am not a, a big gun nut either. Yeah. I, I have shotguns and I have friends that have guns and I'm fine with them having guns. I just don't like the guns around me. Yeah, <laughs> I get that. I get that. Yeah. There, there is something like this movie is just really cool. I mean, the couple at the center, it's kind of a, a, a Bonnie and Clyde thing, you know, like, Obviously, they're taking a lot from the actual history of Bonnie and Clyde and, you know, the movie, the Warren Beatty film, Bonnie and Clyde, would end up taking a little bit from this as well. Um, a lot from this, actually, but yeah. Yeah, so I, I really liked it. I, it's not been a like a, hu a movie I go back to a lot. I think I've seen it twice before we decided to discuss it here. Uh, how about you? What was your... I have probably seen this movie 30 or 40 times. Uh, <laughs> I love this movie. Like, love it like this movie back in the 80s uh, so I, I discovered it through Danny Perry um, it was yeah, like okay. one of the selections in his first volume of cult movies and uh, it came out in the early 80s and um, and of course I had all three of the volumes uh, and I had a couple of his other books too in the 80s and I still have them um, but he was like a prime influence on me uh, in, in as to what type of movies I was watching then and now and um he it, it was kind of interesting because um i i read his review of the movie and and i was like i i absolutely have to see this movie it just sounded amazing to me and so um we like i said you know we were carrying you know a, a variety of movies at our at our bookstores that i was i was responsible for buying for the bookstores and uh, I noticed that Gun Crazy was, a, was, I looked it up and it was like, oh, it's available on VHS. And I said, well, maybe I'll get a copy of myself. And I thought, well, maybe I'll sell a few in the store because we were selling film noir pretty well. And, uh, and we, you know, it was just a selection of them. But I decided to get that in a couple other titles. And Gun Crazy sold pretty well in the store. I was surprised by that. Apparently there was an audience for it. I had never heard of it before. And I got my copy. And that became like, it was like porn to me. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> well, <this> movie, uh, <laughs> well, and for a very good reason. Uh, and that's watching that, it know, in like 10 minute chunks. Yeah, there you go. But what, what I mean is um, the film, it, you go, oh, it's a noir and it's, you know, about gun obsession and it's about a Bonnie and Clyde thing. That's fine and well, but it's about this relationship between these two people who meet you know via guns and their every moment together is just without any sex actually happening in the film super sexualized like the them shooting guns at each other in a carnival show is like just like an overtly sexual scene 
it is so just dripping with sex and you know the just the way they look at each other and the and just i mean it's like and you know from the moment she comes on screen and she's you know dressed in the cowgirl outfit and she's firing the gun and you just go this is the most gorgeous woman i've ever seen in my life <laughs> you know it's <laughs> like you know but then it's just the looks the two of them give each other it's just you know and you can't you're astounded it doesn't turn into a porn movie you know it's just like it's just you know for its time just amazing they got away with some of this stuff especially where she's like shooting between her legs and it's just like what you know it's like um but well, yeah from that second on i was like this is an amazing movie and then beyond that the entire film has this kind of like german expressionist kind of style to it in a, in a lot of its shots and stuff that just that ties into everything that I like about movies. And then just the way they film the robberies and they film with a camera mounted in the back of a car, of the car so that cool. the actors themselves are driving. That's so cool like, looking. The actors are doing their own driving and they're driving around a, a town without telling the town that they're doing this and they're filming this bank robbery scene. Just stunning the way they film this movie. Every every shot in the film has something to it, some sort of, you know, composition to it. And uh, that's all on Joseph H. Lewis. He is such a, I mean, this is the best movie he ever made. He made a bunch, he made like 40 movies and some are, I've seen a lot of his films. I've probably seen about 20 of his films and, and I like a lot of them to varying degrees, but none to the level of this movie. I mean, you see, he put everything into this film. It's just, exceptional work i was gonna say the if, if i was to use one word to describe the direction of this movie it would be clean it, it's very direct everything is conveying a lot of emotion a lot of information visually one thing that like really stuck with me back in my early 20s i read the um akira kurosawa's something like an autobiography he told a story about like one of the first scripts he worked on he showed it to somebody I think it was uh, it was actually Sanjiro Sagata, where he had this entire scene where this guy, the, the main character went and he grabbed a sign from the dojo and he comes back and he throws it on the ground and he showed it to somebody. And the person was like, well, just cut this entire scene out and just show him throwing the sign on the ground. Like you got all the information you need there. And yeah. I, I kind of think about that, like how to cut corner, not cut corners, but just like cut out things that aren't needed so you can get the maximum amount of information visually. And You're right. And Joseph Lewis in this movie, like you, you read the stories about like what he did to the script, like that, that bank robbery scene, you mentioned it where they've got the, the camera mounted in the back of the car. And it's all basically like one take where the car pulls up, he goes in, she's waiting in the car. She's got to distract a cop that just kind of walks around. Yeah. The they car. never go in the bank. That's yeah. Because they didn't want to build a set. That was like a five page scene where they actually go in the bank and he's like, no, I'm just going to do this in one day and one shot. <laughs> and like, yeah. And he had, Prove to the producers that he could do it. So he he got a 16 millimeter camera and did it in, in his own car to prove that they could do it before yeah. they would actually let him mount a camera inside. And there's other shots later on we'll get to, like the the very end of this movie too is another masterclass of just like cutting out what you don't need. And it'll yeah, there's nothing wasted in this movie. There's and nothing wasted. I I I just it's so. Like I get what you're saying. It's so cool to look at. Like it just like everything about it is goes behind in this like really without being overly stylized. It's not style over substance. It's just like it is such a 
an easy watch, I guess. I, I don't know. I'm trying, everything I, th I say makes it sound like, oh, it goes down easy. Like it's, it's just like, it seems minimizing to it, but it, it, it is right. really like, really. It, it's a gorgeous movie. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's well shot. It's not a cheap movie by any means. They, I mean, they, they spent some money on it, um, but it's also not, you know, it's also not a giant budget either. I mean, obviously they were trying to save money on a bank scene and stuff. So, but it is a, it is a decent budget and it looks marvelous. It's so beautifully shot. And the, the amazing thing is I think, I think Lewis said there was only like one process shot in the entire film, which I don't quite buy. I think there's a couple other ones, but you know, but I mean, oh, certainly yeah. they, yeah, there, there yeah. are, there are, there are a couple others, I think. Were there, I don't think. Where they're not really driving, is that what you're saying? Well, no, most most of the driving scenes they are actually driving, but there's there's like a couple shots where they're uh, when they're first as a couple when they're uh, there's like the little montage of them enjoying themselves, going camping and doing this and that and having dinner and stuff. There's a couple of like shots where it's clearly like something that they process where they had like a you know the blue screen or whatever they called it. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, think of the word but yeah there's there's a couple shots like that where it's clearly you know kind of kind of phonied up but uh but otherwise yeah most of the shot most most of the film is just like just you know on location and, and just really cool looking oh i meant to mention i wanted to mention earlier i actually have this in my notes for this gun for hire but I, it's going to come up because we're talking about like the kind of sexual nature of this movie without actually having sex in it um, there's a line in uh, This Gun for Hire where um, Robert Preston is looking for Veronica Lake at the nightclub and the one lady there is like, I don't know why she didn't wait for you. She went off with that Wolf Gates to his house and she says to him that she better get there quick or he better get there quick because she's wrestling by now or I'm no judge of character, which <laughs> I was like, oh my God. <laughs> That's a very, very out front like admission of what he, she thinks is going on yes uh anyway back to gun crazy because yeah um i mean i you you know this quote i'm only reading it i only read it on wikipedia what uh lewis said to danny peary about um uh, about how doll and uh john doll and peggy cummins were supposed to act their roles um where uh, I guess I'll, I'll read the quote here, which you're familiar with, I'm sure. Uh, I told John, your cock's never been so hard. And I told Peggy, you're a female dog in heat and you want him, but don't let him have it in a hurry. Keep him waiting. That's exactly how I talked to them and I turned them loose. I didn't have to give them more directions. Uh, and, and you sense that in the film. Yeah, because yeah, there's, there's shots with the guns and we all know, like, everybody knows like the phallic nature of guns in movies. And that's that's not even worth talking about too much anymore but this movie it, come on let's admit it that's that's what they represent in real life so but this this movie puts that so much in the foreground there's that scene where they're holding up the gas station and uh piggy cummins is filling the gas tank and she's dangling the gun in front of her crotch and the camera like yeah. pulls up like slowly over it there's no disguising what that is supposed to be <laughs> And they got away with it. This this movie is great. I I'm out, I like to cut to the chase. I love this movie. It's really good. Yeah. Oh, I forgot Russ Tamblin was in this. So he's the very first person you see in the entire film. Uh, you see a younger version of. Well, no, 
don't you? No. Very first shot of the film is him looking at the window, the gun oh, in the window. You're right. And then it kind of cuts back to show and then it cuts back to the younger Bart. Yeah. When he kills the chick with the BB gun. But yeah, the very first shot of the film is 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 Rust Hamlet looking through the window and then trying to steal a gun. Which is funny because I guess this is the third of these podcasts that we've done where we've <laughs> been watching a movie and somehow Russ Hamblin comes up in it. You know, it's like. Well, let's see if it continues then. <laughs> we we should just do a Russ. We should just do a Russ Hamblin month, really. I mean, at this point. So. Maybe. I mean, he's got such a long like career. He's He's been around and done so many things. There um, you go. Yeah. So that scene, because he, he gets caught immediately because he turns in trips and there's a sheriff like standing behind him um he goes to court he's being raised by his sister who's about to get married i saw a description of the judge who sends him to reform school um saying that he he is a, a sympathetic he called they call him a sympathetic judge who tries to help him by sending him to reform school and i watched that scene i'm like this i think this judge is supposed to look nice and kindly but i think about what he's doing and i'm like that's not that's not very sympathetic. No, like he would be letting him go back to live with his with, with his sister. I mean, that's not sympathetic. Sending yeah. anybody to reform school is not sympathetic because there, there's he's got so many character witnesses speaking on his behalf. Like he, right. like more character witnesses than a trial like that would ever have. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's like, oh, you kid, you try to steal a gun. Okay, you're gonna go to you know JV Hall or whatever it is for thirty days or whatever. You know, I mean, it's like. JD Hall, JD Hall, but you know, um, isn't he there for like four years? And then he yeah, goes, then he goes yeah. into the army for four, four right. years. Right, he goes into the army from Rosarios, where his friends don't see him until he gets back out of the army. Yeah. Oh, is it just me or does that one friend, the one that um, ends up working for the, that ends up being a policeman? That's Clyde. What's that? Clyde. Okay. Well, Clyde, he's, the, he's the sheriff. Yeah. The young version of Clyde looks a lot like conan o'brien it kind of does yeah <laughs> i'll put it maybe i'll put a picture up i just think like he, he kind of looks like that every time or every once in a while conan would have like the the child picture of him or right and it looks like this kid yeah maybe a few less freckles but i agree i agree the 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 guy who plays dave his buddy as an adult uh won an oscar he wrote this. He he won an Oscar for the screenplay, The Defiant Ones. Oh wow! And he was nominated for, and he was nominated for an Oscar for the screenplay for Inherit the Wind. So Nedrick Young was his name. Oh, so he was, he was an actor, but he's also a screenwriter. He wrote a bunch of movies. Uh, that's cool. Yeah. So he, his friends don't see him since he until he gets out of the the military. Um, right. So we cut from that court scene basically to. Uh, him coming back into town his his sister has been married and has several kids uh do we see do we see her husband ever I, you know i don't think we do because she's always home alone with those kids yeah well that, that was i think that was kind of the point of the movie is that you know they're they're showing the showing the difference between her life and their life and you know their life seems exciting and her seems drab you know which is exactly the opposite of the way things you know they really wanted things to be in the movies you know they kind of got away with that one but you know it's like yeah that um even if they're being pursued by police and eventually killed it's like yeah but their life is way more exciting than hers you know she's stuck with kids and housework and drudgery yeah so we we get this 
opening scene with the 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 he's on trial or he's in front of the judge because he tried to steal a gun and everybody comes up as a character witness and they say that he's just obsessed with guns but he's never violent like he hates shooting at living things like there's a story he he killed a baby chick and, right when he's seven uh, yeah when he was seven and felt terrible about it he was given a chance like they were out messing around and they were going to shoot at a mountain lion and he refused that he's never violent he just likes having a gun and he likes shooting it uh but even in the military when he eventually goes to the military he doesn't see action either he but he does teach marksmanship yeah but i'm we cut from that to him coming back after eight years and he goes to visit his friends and the first thing he does is he takes them out to where they used to go camping in the woods and shows them all his guns and they just take turns sh shooting which right seems to me like that might be a red flag to his friends <laughs> like he's just been sent to reform school and but for his obsession but, but with they also know he was in the they they know he was in the military so they have a measure of respect for he has made something out of himself and he taught marksmanship so he was teaching in the military so they probably just see it as well he found a way to to channel his his gun obsession into something positive yeah uh, that's true that's true i mean they're they're his friends and that's what they used to do when they were friends is they go out shooting so i mean you grow up in a small mountain town that's what you do right you you know if you, and, and they were all well and not just not just shooting guns but drinking beer too so i mean they're doing what you know yeah they're doing what young, young men of that time would have done so you know I, I i don't think that's really a red flag to them and plus one of them is a sheriff so that's true that's true yeah yeah and, and and the guns he has, he has like English dueling pistols. And so that's kind of a fancy lad kind of thing to have, you know? So it's not just, you know, it's not just, yeah, I just went out and bought a gun at the gun store. He's not got these fancy pistols and stuff. So it looks like it's more of a hobby, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Um, so they go from this, they go out, they decide to go see the carnival. It's coming through town. They're just out having fun. They see the show with the sharpshooter, the... Um, Annie Laurie Starr. So I, I, I've been wondering for years whether, because they call her Laurie throughout the movie. They call her Laurie. And I've always wondered if Annie was meant to evoke Annie Oakley. Even her last name, Starr, with two R's, is reminiscent of Bell Star. So you have two, you know, Western female heroes, or not heroes, but, you know, Western figures um, evoked by her name. But I've always wondered if Annie was, because they always call her Laurie in the film. And so, except in the newspapers, they call her Annie Laurie Stark. And that's the way she's billed at the carnival. And I've always wondered if that was just like an affectation where, you know, they just put it on there to try to sell more tickets at the carnival. And actually uh, watching the commentary on my DVD uh, the other day, the uh, person doing the comment, the story doing the commentary actually mentioned that, says, that he believes that that's that's something that was added on to her name because it's not in the not in the original story. Okay, that does seem that does seem likely. It did seem kind of like a stage name, and I don't. I, I did yeah, because they never actually call her Annie in the film. Yeah, I think it, I I think I didn't even get the Annie part of it until I was like writing this down and I went to IMDb and Wikipedia and I was like I thought her yeah. name was Laura. Uh, it, it appears in the newspapers. It appears also on the. Thing outside the, the carnival tent and all that stuff it, it appears in a couple of things in a okay. couple of places you see her full name and when they introduce her at the carnival they call her annie laurie star okay okay so they, that they're introduced he is immediately transfixed his friends are kind of like 
like giving each other glances like oh look how obsessed this guy is because he just immediately like leaning forward and staring at her so intense giant beaming smile i like i don't know if i've seen uh, i'm gonna look him up really quick uh john doll john Dahl? oh yeah he only made eight films he's i don't i think i remember reading something like some of the other actors they wanted for this role but then i i was like I don't think any of them struck me as good as John Dahl. There's something very all-American about him. He's so wholesome looking. Well, he's one of he's one of the killers. Two years two years earlier, he played one of Rope. the killers in. Yeah. Okay. That that makes sense. And and how how interesting is it that he's in Gun Crazy, where they do that single take shot for the bank robbery, and and you know, and, and there, another scene also. And then he was also in Rope two years earlier, which is a, a series of 10 minute takes, you know? Yeah. Oh, and Spartacus. He was in Spartacus. And yeah. And yeah. Uh, eight years after Gun Crazy, he was in Spartacus. And uh, yeah, he did not. He was mostly a stage actor and he did some television, but he was mostly a stage actor. Another one. He died at age 50. He died very young also. Yes. Wikipedia has his death certificate, which I've never seen that before. The other interesting thing, and it's never, I mean, it's talked about in a lot of areas, but he was, uh, he was, uh, uh, gay also. And that oh. was, uh, but of course, very hidden, of course, you know, given I'm, the time. I'm looking at his, 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 uh, photo on Wikipedia. They've got a, like, not a headshot. It's kind of a body shot. He looks a lot like John, uh, John Mulaney in this picture. Oh Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, that is a little bit. Yeah, he's such he's so clean cut and boyish in this movie. I guess he's only supposed to be twenty four, right? But uh, right. twenty two, like twenty two. When he filmed uh, it, he's but yeah, he, but yeah, he's supposed to be he's supposed to be like twenty twenty two, twenty four or something. Like he's that. great. Uh, they're both great in this. I really like Peggy. They're Cummings. fantastic together. They have great chemistry, um, and they both are just perfect in their parts. They're. Well, I, I don't think I don't think they could have cast these roles any better. In in the previous noir episode I did with Jessica Scott, uh, we we were talking about Detour, and um, the femme fatale in that film, uh, she is so um, Anne Savage in that film as Vera is kind of like the the end game of femme fatales. Like she's so vicious in that movie um she's so evil and and uh manipulative and domineering and peggy cummings in this movie even though i think a lot of the advertising materials in the movie itself for a little while kind of wants to paint her as a femme fatale never comes across as one like she wants she but, but she is she kind of is because she she's definitely is because well, he doesn't do anything in this film unless she's commanding it yes but i also feel after watching this that her affection for him and desire to go off and just live a peaceful life with him is genuine but she just wants she wants more than she can actually like there's get. a big dispute about this because joseph h lewis in his interviews with danny perry um he felt that she was just a he, he thought she was the personification of evil. Oh. He thought she was nothing but evil and didn't love Bart at any point. Actually love him at all. And Danny Perry took 
exception to that. He feels that it's possible that she doesn't love him until the moment after the armor, the armor uh, factory robbery, where they're supposed to escape in separate cars, but then they can't bear to be apart from each other. He feel and Danny Perry feels that's the moment. And it's weird because Joseph H. Lewis, he that was not in the script. He decided that he wanted to actually have them meet meet and and stay in the same car. Um, so that was not in the original script, from what I understand, and that and that he changed the, he changed the script so that they would actually go off together instead of actually separating. The originally original script had them actually separating and then meeting up later, but to, to avoid the police. But in 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 that scene, that's where Danny Perry feels that they actually actually are in love, totally in love with each other. And Joseph H. Lewis did not see it that way. So it's interesting that the director of the film never felt that she loved him well i i mean it's hard to argue with authorial intent when it's so clear like that <laughs> but uh at a certain point but what's on the screen is that she loves him that's yeah. what's on the screen and i so i don't know if she actually wants because she says up until the i mean she's not made for having kids mm -mm. and when he mentions kids you know that she's not buying into that you know she knows that that's not for her I, I'll, I'll agree. I, I think that she is not good. I'm not, I don't want to make her like a saint in this. I, I felt like her emotion for Bart was genuine and it, it, I didn't think so for a lot of the movie until, and I was actually going to single out the same scene that Danny Perry did, uh, that scene where they, they're driving off in opposite directions and then they both stop and yeah. they get out of their cars and run to each other or he runs to her, but they both stop and look back at each other. And she is right. as, as much part of that. I, I thought they were- and That's where I agree with him. That's where I agree with Danny Perry. I'm well, not agreeing uh, with, with Lewis. I'm, I'm, but Lewis's take on it, which surprised the hell out of me to read that. Um, years ago, it didn't, I didn't really, it kind of glossed over it, but only re reading it recently, I kind of went, how did he have that take on it? It, it doesn't make sense to me because- there are clearly moments in this where, I mean, yes, she is the femme fatale in this movie. It's definite. And he does not make a move without her say so. That's definite. But there are moments, especially late from that moment on for the rest of the film, even when she gets angry and she wants to kill everybody and he's able to like, you know, he kind of he has to smack her at one point, but he's able to talk her down. She is obviously definitely in love with him. She has that line where uh, she says, I'm going to butcher it. I guess I could look it up. But it's, she says, I'm bad, but I'll try to be good. Yeah, I've got the quote here. Um, oh, maybe I don't. Oh, I thought I did. She said, I'm going to try real hard to be good, is what she says. Something like along those lines. I don't know if I've ever been any good, she says, but I'm going to try awful hard, you know, or something like that. Yeah, but and she certainly is <laughs> the worst of the two of them. But at the time she says that, you don't know that she's actually sincere or not. That's the thing about her is that she there's always this edge to her, at least through the first half of the film, where you're never quite sure what she's you know what she's up for. Yeah, because when when they leave, uh, is it Pickett the um, or Packet pa Packy what the, Packer. The, the guy, the um, the guy who runs the carnival, the carnival barker, who who she's Packet. in. Packet. Packet. Okay. Yeah. 
there's a scene when they leave packet and he 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 kind of shoots the gun the gun not at him but just kind of like scares him with he it shoots, he shoots the mirror there's a scene they talk about how we find out later that they've killed a man together like in a hold up her and packet she killed a man yeah yeah and, so, and he holds it over her packet holds it over her is that's his insurance to keeping her in a relationship with him when they leave the carnival and uh, it's so it's set up as she's going to just be a regular femme fatale who is just using him and then is going to kind of drop him or manipulate him into doing all this. And in a way she does, but I really like, I kept waiting for the claws to come out and they don't like she, she plays it. I, uh, I guess, I don't know if subtle is the right word, but she plays it with enough sweetness and emotion aside from like one scene where she actually threatens to walk out and she's like kind of leaving the, right. the motel. Yeah. Um, but she's got him hooked. So, I mean, that's, that's the whole thing is in the film, you see moments where he's wrestling with what they're, what they're doing. And she's always able to like pull him back, just pull him back just a little bit, a little bit at a time. Um, because she's got the hook, she's got the hooks in him, and that, and that she's in control of the relationship, but he's always, he, he's always in doubt, you know, and, and, and he, he wrestles with the, what, what, what they're doing. And she never does. She never does. She knows. And, and, and there's always that one more job, one more job kind of thing going on. And, and then quite literally they do their last job. You know? Yeah. And, and there's the, the, there's also, also the distinction that he is just obsessed with guns. He likes shooting them. He's good at it. He likes having something that he's good at. Right. And, and there's, there's gotta be, you know, like we can talk about the, or I think it's clear what the, the Freudian, uh, implications of of that are what the 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 um the connections that they want you to draw from that right he, well there's even the, there's even the line where he says we go together annie i don't know why maybe like guns and ammunition go together yeah you know? and and you go okay yeah he's the gun she's the ammo you know yeah and she is definitely more in love with killing like he doesn't want to kill any he doesn't want to be violent he, he doesn't he likes using guns, but he doesn't want to be really violent with them. He doesn't want to have to use them. Um, she kills people when she doesn't need to a, right. a couple of times. Uh, yeah. There's no reason she needed to turn and shoot that secretary who had pulled the alarm. The alarm was already pulled. They should have just run. <laughs> or the security guard, though yeah. he was shooting at him. But, you know, but she's she does just full on turn around and shoot that guy from the back of the car. And then and later on when they're leaving his, they're hiding out at his sister's house with all the kids and they're leaving to run and she grabs the baby. <laughs> I mean, she is full on willing to use a baby as a shield. And so, and he just and, like, and that's, and that's, and that's why the kids think, that's why I say that, that she would never be one to have kids because yeah. you, you, that's the moment where, yeah, she's like, she's like, we're going to use this baby and, and, you know, to get away from the cops and stuff. And it's like, he's like, no, you're not. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's so funny the movement. He turns around and she's carrying a baby in front of her, and he just grabs it and like put this back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it's a fun, it's a fun moment. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like I, I'm, I'm maybe trying to be too more charitable because the movie, the movie was. Don't get it wrong. I totally adore her. Yeah, but she is a killer, and she is violent, and she has a rage inside her that. Bart has something he's wrestling with and that's, you know, he doesn't want to kill things, but you know, he guns are his life. 
and she's kind of guns are her life too but she happens to enjoy using them to get what she wants yeah i'm, I'm, and, I'm and and there's there's obviously a past to her there's obviously something going on in her past i mean she talks about you know her life and because she is british the actress is british and her character is british somehow over in america they never really explain that um but and it, it could it could just be through the carnival life she ended up working at you know moving from carnival carnival to carnival as a as a as a marksman but um we don't get the full story but i mean there's even that line that she says because you you realize that there's something in her that just makes her angry and she says everything in these 48 states hurts me and that is just such a downer of a line yeah oh man what has happened to her you know i mean because i mean honestly i look at the news today i go everything in these 50 states hurts me but you know it's like you know but obviously something has something has gone on in this this character's life that has got her to this point and has made her so angry and it's probably just shitty men it's probably just shitty everything you know and and she i mean she was probably abused there's all sorts of stuff she might have she's probably been raped you know and this is her revenge on the world. Yeah, I. But I, somehow, in the middle of all this, she ends up falling in love, and that's what probably confuses her, also. Yeah, because I think I'm trying to be a little bit more charitable towards her, because this movie's other title is "Deadly Is the Female," and a lot of the ads for this. It was of, its original. It was its original title. Okay, and and a lot of the ads, like you look at the posters, she is looking very angry and holding smoking guns like the movie the the ads like really play up how violent she is and the movie gets right. too where uh bart is kind of looking pretty saintly next to what she's doing and i i'm always kind of looking for that like like well it it, it maybe not quite 50 50 but he's playing a part in this too his hands aren't clean even though the movie does i don't know if the movie really tries to make it look that way but i i'm, I'm just saying like there's something about her and it's got to be Peggy Cummins performance in this that that is so kind of not not quite ingratiating but it's so um it is still it's likable in a way that a lot of femme fatales never reach they like a lot of femme fatales in noir films reach a point where they're just like they, they cross a line they're unlikable they're irredeemable there's something about her that I always still really liked and not in the same way. Like I liked Vera in Detour. I think I think Vera is a really fun character, um, but it's not what I mean about about like Peggy Cummins in this. She she plays it very, uh, except for a couple of moments, kind of very sweetly. When you which you maybe wouldn't expect. Oh yeah, well I I I totally fell in love with her. So you know it's like, you know I don't I don't I don't want to brands or or. Bob Banks or anything like that, but you know, Peggy Cummings, I might. You know, it's like, <laughs> I mean, when I when I watched that carnival scene the first time, I acted the same way Bart was. I was just like, uh, uh, tongue <laughs> out, you know, like, yeah, and it's kind of been that way all my life. <laughs> so yeah, it's like it's actually amazing this movie didn't turn me towards guns. So, <laughs> so we talked about uh, the the big kind of centerpiece of the film is that bank heist. I remember before I'd even seen this movie, uh, I think PBS maybe had, had a, a few series of, of documentaries about film. 
um, that they, they used to kind of cycle through late nights every once in a while um, back in the 90s. And I remember seeing a lot of discussion about that bank heist scene, about how they filmed it, that they basically like converted a car and like opened up the back and put a new front right. on it so it would look like it was, and they would just drive it around with the camera in it and how kind of revolutionary that was at the time. And so I kind of knew about this movie a little bit before I finally saw it. And when I did see it, like, it's still impressive now. Like all of those driving scenes look really cool. I, I really like how that, that scene unfolds with just like the tension of watching Lori out in the car and when she sees the cop and she says that line, oh, just stop there, just stop there. <laughs> and like, right, yeah. stops right by the door. And so she's got to get out and distract him. And uh, well, what's also funny about that scene is that they also didn't know if there was going to be a parking spot. Yeah, yeah. No, they did it all. They didn't they, tell anybody. It was I was all on the fly. It was uh, all on the fly. Apparently some bystanders did call the cops thinking that a robbery had just happened. Right. I mean, there, I think there's there's rules against that now. There probably were regulations about that at the time, like, right, filming without a, a permit. Um, or yeah, maybe they had probably. a permit and they just didn't tell people on the street. Well, that's I think that's what it was. They probably had a permit to film. I, I kind of hinted at it earlier that I did want to talk about another kind of, like, moment of paring down, which is at the ending of the movie, when they're cornered up in the mountains, kind of a marshy area, um, and it's just they're surrounded by fog and marsh and tall grass and the cops are closing in on every side and you don't ever see the cops now in the script you did see the cops but in the movie it's all the camera just stays completely on bart and laurie as the Everything cops suggested yeah as the cops are closing in you hear the dogs and you hear them and the stomping um it's a crazily romantic ending i mean it's it's tragic it's it's a downer but it's super romantic they're laying there in the grass and, and she's, her head's on his chest and, you know, they're both, you know, ah, it's like, but then there, there's, there is the kind of ironic twist at the end with the way they die also. Yeah. Cause, um, cause she gets up, she's about to shoot and his friends are out there in that search party. And so he shoots right. her to stop her from killing somebody else. He kills her and then and they kill him. They, yeah. they, the cops only know that guns were fired, and so they all fire in on the area, and it, it kills both of them. Uh, well, she's yeah. dead, but um, yeah, he killed her. It's so the so the the one person you know he doesn't want to kill is the person he kills. So yeah, and it's shot. It's it's clearly on a set. It, it is that pea soup fog, like just mist on the ground, and yeah. And his friends come up and look over the body and then kind of turn him. And there's like a crane shot looking down on this little uh, patch of tall grass in the middle of all this, like, kind of, like, well, fog and, and yeah, rush. it kind of reminds me of uh, some of the scenes in The Most Dangerous Game. Oh, okay. I get that. I get that. It's, yeah. so, it's a very striking image. It's it, like lending to that uh, German expressionism that you mentioned earlier that, yeah. Um, I mean, it's all in kind of suggestion and shadow and fog. And, and the angles, yeah. No, this movie is great. I'm, I, I, like, Gun Crazy right now is on HBO Max. I rented it. I paid to rent it the first time. And then I wanted to watch it again. And I looked. I'm like, oh, it, it just added on HBO. So now I can watch this. Um, you don't own it? I don't. I don't own either of these movies. I know. Wow. Uh, I, may, I may have to change that. Not that I necessarily would have time to revisit them all the time but 
there there is a there is a line that I really like in the carnival scene, and it's you know after because uh, when uh, Bart is going to do the shooting test with her and they shoot the crowns off each other's heads, which is you know a crazy scene. <laughs> I think that to think that carnival would allow like just somebody from the audience to go up there and she's going to shoot at his head and then he's going to shoot at her head. You know, it's just like, how does that, would that wouldn't happen today for sure. That's, you know, I, you know, I, I, don't I, know what this... I did have to think about that too. I'm like, how, they wouldn't allow this. They don't know what his skill is. He hasn't shot anything yet at that point. He hasn't proved he, his... he shot at the, at the bell oh, thing. You're right. You're right. He should, but I was just going to say like, this is like, he is not in no way proven <laughs> that he can do right. this light yeah. matches but, on but his friends head. have pitched in money his his friends have pitched in money for him to do this contest you know so he can win possibly five hundred dollars they have to throw in fifty dollars anyway so re- besides all that but they know as soon as the the, the gunfight's over they're, they're they know they've lost their money and all that stuff you know or, or they're, they're they're probably gonna lose their money but when it's over and uh and and bart has won the money and Bart and Annie are like stare or Lori are staring at each other on the stage. And then the, the Dave and Clyde are sitting in the audience. And one of them says, suppose we had to wait for him. And the other one goes, certainly not. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, no, we lost him. He's, he's gone. You know? it's like... <laughs> uh, yeah, it's good. I, I really enjoy this one. Um, do you have anything more that you want to say uh, about gun crazy? No, I just, I think I, I just, I, I, there, there was something about the music in the movie. Uh, uh, there, there's a couple of songs that are sung by a singer named Francis Irwin, or Irvin, and um, they're in a, um, a diner in the middle of the film, and there's a song playing on over the radio, and it's this this singer, and she's singing a song. Uh, so the song is "Mad About You," which perfectly sums up their relationship. Yeah. That they're you know you know these gun crazy kids, they're you know mad about each other. And by the way, those burgers look terrible. You know, you know those are awful, awful roadside burgers. And, and onions like, are extra. What's that? And yeah, onions, onions are extra. A nickel extra, and they so they don't get the onions, which is going to be all the flavoring on that thing. And then they, and then you know, she bites into the burger, and it's crunchy as all get out. And you just, you know, that bread is stale. You know, I don't care if they toasted it; it's still stale going in. Awful, you know, you, you just know those are burgers are awful. But anyway, the same singer sings a song it, later in the film. They're on the Santa Monica Pier, and you actually see that singer, and she's singing that song from the stage while they're dancing. And then while they're dancing, the next song that is playing right before they, you know, realize the cops, you know, have you know traced their money and all that stuff and are, are nearby. Um, the song that's playing is called "Laughing on the Outside, Crying on the Inside." And I just thought that's like a heavily ironic, you know, (laughs) song to be playing while they're, I mean, so they were clued in on the music too. It wasn't just, we're going to play like these these songs actually kind of mean something to the moments that they're in. I thought that was just kind of cool. For, I have a feeling that this movie was kind of put together pretty quickly. Like obviously he was shooting with the eye of, of speeding things up. It amazes me how much everything about it seems to have intent. Everything about it seems to enforce the metaphor or the narrative metaphor of this film for, for something that also seems like it was put together rather quickly. Right. Although it was, it was written by Dalton Trumbo, correct? Well, this, the original story was McKinley Cantor. Um, so here's the thing about the Dalton Trumbo thing. 
is that yes, Trumbo wrote the screenplay, but for like 40 some years, people thought Millard Kaufman wrote the screenplay. He's the credited writer on the film. Yeah. And in the Danny Perry books from the 80s, Danny Perry only talks about Millard Kaufman working with Joseph H. Lewis to turn the Cantor story into the screenplay. And he talks in great length about Kaufman and Lewis working on the, on, 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 on the film. And in, in Lewis's interviews with him, he talks about Kaufman. He doesn't mention Trumbo whatsoever. It wasn't revealed until 1992, which is after these books came out, that Trumbo had written a whole bunch of movies back then. And this was one of them. And that Trumbo is the actual writer. He was the writer of like the second go at the story, at, at, a, at a treatment on the story. And that was the screenplay that they used for the movie. And then Kaufman served as Trumbo's front because, yeah. you know, Trumbo was, you know, blacklisted in Hollywood by that point and had moved to Mexico. And while he was in Mexico, he wrote like 30 screenplays. This was one of them. Um, um, and, and all of them were released throughout the 50s under, you know, different names and, uh, and a variety of, of pseudonyms and fronts. And so, yeah, Kaufman served as a front for a couple of screenplays, apparently. And uh, this was one of them. And so it was just interesting that even in Lewis's interviews with Perry, that he only talked about Kaufman and not Trumbo. So was he, was Lewis that good? You know, even into the, even in the 80, I think he died in like 2000 or something like that. Uh, was he up until that point still hiding, hiding the fact that Trumbo wrote the screenplay? You know, was he holding onto a secret that long or was it just, you know, I, or had he forgotten? I don't know. But, you know, or, it was just interesting. Could it be that he didn't know that he got it through Kaufman? That is possible. That is possible. But he talks about working with Kaufman on screenplay. But it's possible that Trumbo sent the script to Kaufman and then Kaufman and Lewis worked on, you know, revisements and all that stuff. And that's probably what happened. Yeah. So, yeah, it's true. Uh, it's quite probable that at that point he wasn't aware that Trumbo was involved either. Interesting. Both movies this week have uh, a deal with the people being found out because of marked bills, or yeah, the the serial numbers are mar are are known. Which yeah. how often? I I didn't look up any stats, but how often did that sort of thing work? Because I've worked retail. I can tell you, I've never looked at the serial numbers at a bill. I know. I well, it was in White Heat also. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Which was the year before Gun Crazy, but it was in a lot of films at that time. But that was that's when that's when uh, the FBI and, uh, and law enforcement in general had like a lot of new technology. You know that they were like they're breaking in, like fingerprinting was becoming more of a thing in that time too. So um, you know it was kind of getting harder to be a crook. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think I think this the, the serial number thing was like. A, especially for bank robberies was, was, was like a big thing for, and I, I think it still is. I don't know, but. I just have a feeling that it would still be pretty easy to pass that money. Cause if you're just putting it in retail, especially at something like the, the Santa Monica pier or even a dress shop, even though they had that, that list of serial numbers, they're going to just take money. They're not going to. Most places wouldn't look at that list. Yeah. yeah. So I am. Um... It, it, I guess every once in a while you will find it only takes one person to do it, but it, it just seems like that wouldn't be as successful as this movie makes it out to be. Well, 
I, I think that um, um, Bart and, and Lori, if they just hadn't run from the pier area, they would have been fine. <laughs> but the fact that they take off and everybody in town's watching them run away like maniacs. And then they hold up a cab at gunpoint. You know, yeah. to get away. It's like if they just quietly walked off and then, you know, took somebody's car, they would have been fine, you know. But they panicked. Yeah. They, they see cops looking at the list and they, they look at a bill and they go, oh, you know, there must be somebody around here. All I have to do is go around the corner and slowly slip off and they would have been fine, you know. Yeah. Um, I think that'll, I think that might do it. I'm not sure if I have anything more to say about Gun Crazy other than it's a great movie. Good, good, great movie. Everybody should check it out. But I suppose uh, unless you have anything more, we'll take a break. We'll come back with our final goodbyes. All right, we're back. We're about to say goodbye for, for this episode and wrap this up. But before we do, I figure we'll just have a, a little chat here. Rick, I know usually when you're preparing for these, you do a bunch of side views. You, you watch a bunch of related stuff or it sends you off on tangents. Uh, anything yeah. you've been watching this week? Anything that you want to mention that you've been? So, um, yeah, I, 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 I kind of did kind of a semi. Well, I, I kind of sprung off the lad, like I mentioned during the uh, this gun for hire, I, I did watch a couple of Lad and Lake's other films, uh, The Glass Key and The Blue Dahlia. I watched both of those, and uh, and they're both like terrific films. They're they're very enjoyable. They're not as good, quite as good as This Gun for Hire, but they are very good films, very enjoyable. And then uh, uh, La Samurai, uh, ah. Jean Pierre Melville, uh, his his uh, nineteen sixty seven film with uh, um, Alain Delon. Um, I, I, that is definitely really playing off of the Raven character in this gun for hire. I mean, there's so many parallels between, uh, between Jeff Costello and, and, and Raven. It's, it's, it's really, they, they really should be seen back to back. I mean, they're there. It's not a copy of this gun for hire, but there are definitely, you know, parallels between those characters that, that really come, come into play when you watch them. And I, I, I believe it was, I believe this gun fryer was definitely an inspiration for it. Um, and that was a lot of fun. And then another film playing off of this gun for hire that I watched, um, which I adore, uh, is Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. <laughs> I was going to watch that for this. I was, I was hoping somebody would want to talk about it. Because, uh, because um, they actually use uh, some of the scenes from this gun for hire in the film, which is the, 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 with the blackmailer and then shooting through the door and all that stuff. That scene is instead instead of uh, instead of the blackmailer and, and the girl, it's Steve Martin and Alan Ladd. And Steve and Alan Ladd when he takes the shot, Steve Martin tries to dodge it, and then he goes into the other room, and then Alan Ladd shoots through the door, and Steve Martin gets hit and he falls down, and then Alan Ladd reach when he pushes the door open you see a hand reach into Steve Martin's pocket and he steals the, <laughs> the friends of Carlotta enemies of Carlotta list from Steve Martin's pocket. So it's Alan Ladd who takes it in, in dead men don't wear plaid. And it's really cleverly done, especially when you just watch this gun for hire. And then you watch, you know, cause when I first saw dead men don't wear plaid, I had no frame of reference for about 90% of the scenes. Cause I saw it in a theater when it came out in 1982 and I love, I mainly saw it for Steve Martin and I thought it was hilarious but I had no point of reference for hardly any of the scenes that I was watching. Yeah. 
except for Bogart, I think. I think it was the only one that I that I actually even knew who he was, and maybe Vincent Price. So it was uh, it was it was really fun watching it this time, and I was like, oh, I just saw some of these movies again. So it was it was a really cool scene. And if you have not seen them and don't wear plaid, it is a delight. It's terrific. I I'm really gonna try and get somebody to do that. Maybe if you want to come back, we can talk about it. If uh, if if nobody else. Oh, I would it. absolutely I would absolutely talk about. It. I love that movie. I. I was going to say, because I, I um, well, it's not there now, but I had IMDb up earlier because I was looking looking these movies up. And when I had this gun for higher up, uh, the image, the the image that it showed, like in the slideshow next to it was Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. It was Steve nice. Martin. So uh, I've been thinking about, I might watch that tonight. Now I just, I've been wanting to watch that again for years. Uh, I just, I'm watching it in a few years, but uh, especially with this, I'm definitely going to put that on. That's a fun movie. And then uh, I also watched, uh, well, of course, I watched I Married a Witch because I was on a Veronica Lake tangent. Um, and so I had to watch I Married a Witch again, which is a delightful 1943 fantasy with her and Frederick March. And it's the inspiration for Bewitched. Yeah. Um, so it's very different from Bewitched. It's not, you know, Samantha or anything like that. But it's, you, you clearly see where the inspiration is. But it's just a fun little fantasy comedy but kind of dark in its own way. I mean, it's, it's, it's actually a little dark also, but it's, it's a lot of fun. And then just for a weird thing, I was like looking at Veronica Lake's career and how she ended up. And I was like, wow, you know, I've never, I knew that right before she, a couple of years before she died, she had made a horror film where she played a mad scientist and it's a movie called Flesh Feast. And I found it on YouTube. <laughs> and oh, no. I never, I had never seen it. And it is jaw-droppingly bad. And you see every mile of rough road she went over and the, you know, 25 years after, you know, her heyday. And you see every bit of booze. You see every just bad decision she made on her face. And... Um, and it's just really sad to watch actually but the film itself is ridiculous and she's basically she's a, a scientist who uh is trying to bring back she's she's aligned with this this weird nazi organization to bring back hitler from the dead um but it's only, but her only reason for bringing him back from the dead is that so she can torture him because in her youth, her, her mother was murdered by Nazi scientists. So, and this is taking place in Florida, mind you. So Nazis are hiding in Florida and they, and they, 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 they want to bring Hitler back from the dead. And so they, they clone him or they do something. And so he comes back as middle-aged Hitler with a mustache and everything. And then she has these uh, these flesh-eating uh, 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 maggots or something like that that she then puts all over his face and they they destroy him while he's like screaming and stuff you know and it's like it's a crazy movie but it's super 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 low budget and just ridiculous. I I kind of I mean I, if you said it was bad it sounds bad I kind of want to see it. Oh. You need to see it. I mean, if I nobody else that. watches that, you need to see it. I just feel like a little depressed watching Veronica Lake, who, just look it up, she also died at 50. I know you said yeah. she passed away young, but everybody, like, 
it's, yeah. It's, this this batch of actors from these movies had tragically short lives. Yeah. Well, Peggy Cummins la- still she last she lived for a while. She she grew into her old age. Uh, oh yeah, she did. Yes. She yeah, didn't die until 2017. Right. Yeah. No. She got to. And Robert Preston, he got he got to be old too. So maybe this doesn't belong in here at all. Uh, my introduction to Veronica Lake, outside of you know whatever Looney Tune cartoons reference, I wouldn't have understood, uh, was L.A. Confidential. Like yeah, for, all I remember for, for a lot of people, that's what you know of today. That's where I mean, I was uh, yeah, I was I was nineteen when that movie came out, so I, I hadn't seen Veronica Lake and anything that I could think of, but Kim Basinger in that movie and and made up the to look peek- like the Veronica. peekaboo, yeah, the peekaboo haircut and all that, yeah, which I, was that, like signature that's kind of like the the yeah the image I, of her i had for quite a while until i started yeah. watching these movies the, the the prime film to see her in is sullivan's travels that's just one of the best movies ever made um and she she is and even though she and joel mccray did not get along during the filming of it they do have chemistry on screen they are terrific together it is an absolute what must watch so uh, i think that's going to do it for us this week Rick, should we we should we send anybody your way? Uh, you're on Twitter at the Cinema Four Pylon. Every once in a while, you're not really on there very. Every much. once in a while, I'm on there, but yeah, and I, I and my websites, I I just really haven't gotten them going again yet. I plan to, and just I started working again, so. <laughs> yeah, I get I get you. I get what you mean. Um, I have the same problem. Keep watching movies because that's apparently what I do all the time. So <laughs> it's like, well, um, it's what you love. Do what you love. And you, you've it's got yourself in a position where you can work and earn money while still also being able to indulge in that which you love. I, I see nothing to feel bad about. Yeah, that's true. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us. We are, as always, on Twitter and Instagram at TwoHeadedPod. There's also a Facebook page. Um, I'm most active on Twitter. You can drop us a message there, if, or you can drop us a message if it's longer on Twitter. Uh, twoheadedpod at gmail.com that'll do it for this for us this week we'll see you back here next week for a couple more noir films as we continue summer of shadows on the incredible two-headed podcast Mm -hmm.